we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We're listening to the Shot Caller Podcast with me, your host, Casey Diaz and Joe Needler. You can find us online at Casey Diaz Author on Facebook, at the Shot Caller Book on Instagram, or at the Shot Caller BK on Twitter. And you can always visit us at caseydiaz.net and send an email to info at caseydiaz.net for any speaking engagements or questions you might have. With no further ado, welcome to the show, Rudy. Good to have you here, brother. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, man. So we, 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 we want to hear about, you know... Um, your life and i know that uh it took a lot uh for you to even say yes to to an interview like this um have you have you done any other interviews besides this i've done interviews but mainly at law schools with you know a bunch of lawyers in their law class and you know it just stayed within the the university so this is my first time like actually i mean i've done them in public places as well but they're at law schools and they were for different reasons, but like I have held on to my story for the simple fact that, like I told you, it was just something that never felt right, and to glorify my own name or anything like that is not the purpose, and it also helps to have brothers like Raz and Joel, and for us to come together, and we do that a lot, we come together and we talk about what we're going through and the issues that we're faced with, and you know, it's just good to have uh you know, a strong brotherhood like that. And, you know, yeah, Raz thought it was a good idea and Joe did. And then I think it's a good idea, you know, to Amen. participate and share, you know, what I've been through and to hear what they've gone through. Because there's things that I heard that I didn't know about them. And I learned, and I hope that my brother Raz learns today as well. Yeah. And, and you know, it, um, the same thing uh, when Raz was sharing his childhood uh, here I didn't know that part of his childhood, and um, you know, those of you that follow us on the on this uh, on this podcast uh, got to hear some some real um, some real talk. And as I sat and I listened to uh, his side of the story of his childhood, man, I like you, you get knotted up, you know, and, and it's emotional because it, you know it's something that you know people have this conception of um, you know a, a, a gang member or a a former gang member, and it, and it's just tough all the way through. Uh, but then, you know, there was that human side. We were kids at once, and we went through things. Um, and so it, it was very impactful to hear his story. So we want to hear about y- your story as far as it goes, you know, um, your childhood. What did that look like? Um, what did you enjoy? What was, you know, 
you know, six-year-old Rudy look like, you know, uh, out there uh, in Northern California? Yeah. Well, so I grew up in Northern California and in the Central Valley there in San Joaquin Valley. I grew up in farm country, you know, and um, I'm a child of field workers. My family worked in the field, my grandfather and, and my grandmother and all of the people on both sides of oh, my family. Geez. Okay. They came from Mexico. They migrated from Mexico. Um, and uh, they worked in the fields in California. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of my time at my grandmother's house. My grandmother had 18 children, and uh, it was a big family. We had not one home, but we had like a compound of, of homes that encircled an area and like in between there, there was lots of trees, avocado trees, pomegranates, olives, like just every kind of tree you can think of. Animals of every kind and, you know, lots of chickens and dogs and, you know, goats and pigs and things of that nature. And I spent a lot of my time outside, outdoors. And um, so, you know, in the beginning, I, I always loved to be the first one to wake up at my grandmother's house. My grandmother would wake up like maybe 3.30 every day and, you know, make coffee and start to make frijoles, fresh tortillas every day. Every day was a daily thing. And um, by 4, 4.30, the men would, would line up and, you know, get their breakfast. And, and then I would go and I would flush out the chickens from the coop. So my grandmother would tell me to flush the chickens from the coop and I would open one side and walk through and open the other door. And I take my dog in there. I remember taking my dog and we would walk through there and, you know, the chickens would be going crazy and we'd flush them out the other end. And then my grandmother would come by later and, you know, start getting the eggs from, you know, whatever they laid. She'd, she'd grab the eggs and that's what we we ate. That's where we ate from. That sounds like a good breakfast, man. <laughs> that sounds like a, a hearty, good life right there. And, you know, uh, country life pretty much, right? Uh, or farm life. Um, but getting a good meal like that. And, and what about like your neighbors? It, was it heavily populated? Um, friends, no. uh, childhood friends? Yeah. Like everybody that lived in the neighborhood knew each other. Their families came from Mexico and they settled there and, and they worked in the same in the farms, in the fields, there were, you know, they picked fruits and vegetables and whatever was in season. And um, everybody knew everyone. And, you know, like um, growing up, I remember um, before even I was in the gang or anything like that, it, you know, people didn't ask you where you were from. They would ask you, you know, who your parents were, who's your father, who's your kin, basically. Yeah. What they do, you know, in, in other country places is like, who's your family? That's what they wanted to know, and they wanted to know what kind of connection you had to, you know, that specific land. To me, that sounds like fun, man. Like, you know, you're running around. Uh, uh, I, I didn't get a, 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 an opportunity to grow up with chickens and, you know, and, and other animals around my neighborhood. Uh, that doesn't exist, in, you know, in Rampart or South Central. I mean, we did have the occasional, uh, you know, roosters that somebody brought from I don't know where. And uh, <laughs> it annoyed everybody around the neighborhood. We weren't just, you know, we we're city slickers. So uh, we, we yeah, that that's not uh, something I'm familiar with. But, you know, now you know, as a grown up, to me, that sounds like fun, man. Like, you know, that that's it sounds like responsibility is instilled in you very young. I mean, growing up, you don't really 
tend to appreciate it too much because that's just the way it, yeah. it is. You know, that's the way you grew up. And that's, you know, I, I know like with my mother and, and my grandmother and them, I know it was a struggle for them to to get us to wear shoes because we never wanted to wear shoes. You know what I mean? Because we spent a lot of our time in the dirt, in the fields, and like we didn't want to wear shoes. And like when we went to school, we would have to put shoes on and it was always a battle. And I would be the first thing that I would do is take my shoes off. And I loved, you know, being without a shirt. And it, it was just something that, you know, and growing up now, looking back, I appreciate that. I yeah. really do. I, You know, I used to be ashamed of the fact that, you know, I came from a, a family of farm workers and, and you know, people that, that worked hard for a living was something that I looked down upon because I thought that there's other ways for us to make more money and, and to do something that was a lot easier. And which is a dream of a lot of grandparents and parents when they come from Mexico or, or Central America, wherever you're coming from, is they come over here with the dream. They they come with the vision and, and they want to make the next generation a little better and a little easier. And, and, you know, education and all these things were of value. But when, you know, as an American, I, I was born here, I, I didn't really necessarily appreciate that. Then I looked back and I started to realize that my grandfather was a tree surgeon. He was a master at growing any crop. He could turn one one form of grape into another or one form of stone fruit into another. And like he was the guy that they called in when they had problems with their with their crop. And he can diagnose, he could see, you know, what was wrong with the plant. And that's very valuable. But at the time I really didn't understand what they did. I just know that they had a bunch of knives, like they would sharpen their knives after work every day because they, they were basically surgeon scalpels for trees and the saws that they had and all the, it was just like a big box uh, made out of wood and canvas, like the old style the old school tool, ones. toolboxes. I actually got one of those in there. And it has <laughs> knives and it had uh, rocks, stones, yeah. you know, to sharpen different kinds of stones, different kinds of knives. And it had rubber bands and like just different stuff, the tools of their trade. Yeah. And my grandfather employed, you know, most of my family and, and, but you know, that was kind of work that you didn't bring anyone in unless they were close to you because it was a specialized knowledge and they had to be responsible people to show up because you needed so many people. It wasn't just like regular, you know, field picking or, 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 you know, pruning or anything like that. It was a knowledge that was passed down from, you know, worker to worker. Uh, what types uh, what of trees did he grow or, or harvest or work on? They worked on a lot of different kinds of, of trees, fruit trees, but um, specifically uh, the bread and butter of the year was going up to Napa Valley. My, my grandfather and my dad and my uncles would go and they would stay there, you know, Monday through through Friday and Friday they would come back. So basically it was wine grapes that really paid big, but it would be any any field. And the the reason why it was such a valuable trade is because it saved the farmers money and it saved them time. So if you pull up one tree and you want to plant another, you won't have another crop for four or five years. But this allowed the crop to be able to to be ready in, in one year's time. The trees wow. heal, and then they start to pr produce fruit. 
of a different kind, which is weird. You know, it's the same. Yeah. It would have to be grape for grape and, you know, stone for stone and, and citrus for citrus. But you could change the trees, basically the style or the kind of fruit that that it produced. That, that, that's amazing to me, like, uh, you know, the science behind that. Because when you think about, you know, planting or harvest or, you know, a tree, most of us, you know, uh, we walk right past, uh, you know, a, a grove or a field. And we're not necessarily thinking everything that goes to that, everything that, that it takes to, to um, you know, run an entire field. We just don't, we don't, you know. Uh, I drive through uh, groves all around here, you know, in the Southern California. And we got, uh, you know, when you're going to Santa Barbara, for instance, you know, you got strawberry patches, you got, you know, uh, orange groves, you got just about everything out there. Um, and you kind of just look and you go, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, look at look at all those uh, strawberries. But that's about it. That's the end of the conversation, you know, in and of itself, not really taking consideration the science that goes behind, uh, you know, um, plantation and, 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 and all that stuff, uh, seed and soil. And yeah. it, it's so interesting. You know, it just reminds me of so many stories in the Bible that are based around uh, farming. And, and I'm, I'm sure, Rudy, you're going to comment on that. But I mean, God himself is he loves a good garden. I mean, he loves the whole Bible is based on I mean, so many metaphors about trees and good fruit and bad fruit and about pruning and trimming. And I mean, my mind is just going, yeah. firing off, you yeah. know, and all the times that Jesus mentioned a tree or. Yeah, it's parable it's, upon parable. That's when I started to value that. But that was already after I was in prison and I couldn't touch yeah. a tree or smell a tree or climb a tree. I spent a lot of time points of my life where I, we would just stay in the trees and that's where we would, uh, you know, me and my cousins would have our little gatherings and we'd our, our little, f uh, fruits or whatever, whatever was in, you know, in season, we would, we would eat it. But I, I had to get taken away from that and share that with, with my brothers in Christ. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I wish I knew how to do that. I wish, but see, during that time, I just felt that, field work was for suckers. I just really believed that. And I was ashamed that my family worked in the fields. And when I came to Christ and, you know, later on, I, I, I understood just, you know, like Joel said, like, you know, this is something that Christ mentioned, David mentioned it. Oh, they just comparisons to trees and, you know, just every kind of tree you can think of. And I grew up right by the Sequoia National Forest, where one of the oldest and oh, biggest man. trees in the world is. Yeah. And we used to go up there and we used to see these trees and they were around when Christ was walking the earth. That's so amazing. if you can yeah. imagine these trees and these forests, you know, and, and now when I look at the smallest bug or the biggest tree, I just, I'm amazed by the detail <laughs> of God's creation and I just want to stay there and look at it and take it in, in silence, in amazement. Like, and now I understand and I, I, I really appreciate that part of my upbringing. And now I work a little bit harder than the people that I work next to because my family worked in the fields. And it wasn't about hourly wage. It was about how much fruit you can get into this, this basket or this uh, uh, 
this saco, this sack. Um, you know, my family came over from Mexico. My dad strangely ended up in Alabama. And they picked cotton when they came, you know, and, and they, they made their way west and eventually Texas and then, you know, different states until they made it to California. And my other side of my family, my, 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 um, my mother's family, when they came from Mexico, they ended up in Delano, which is, you know, the heart of the, the farm workers movement there. And, you know, they knew Cesar Chavez and they knew all the people that were related and around there. They grew up around them. You know, and, 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 you know, it was something that I didn't really understand until later on in, 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 in my life. And I didn't appreciate it. But during that time, you know, I, I was a kid, you know, I, I love baseball. I love football. I love all sports. I was very into sports. I was a very good <coughs> student. I was very smart when it came to the books, but I was outside of that. I would get in trouble. You know, I was defiant with the teachers. You know, I'm, I come from a military family, you know, um, three of my family members, you know, my uncles and my dad were Vietnam veterans. And if you can wow. imagine my grandmother at the time, you know, her sons are, are, are serving this country and she didn't speak no English. She never wanted to speak English and her sons were, were there in the war and, and that's, the product of who I am. My dad came back from Vietnam and I was born and my dad didn't talk about the war, but he had scars on his body from shrapnel, from bullets. And I didn't know. And I never thought I would ask him. And he just said he got cut and that would be the end of the conversation. But I grew up around Vietnam vets and it was just funny that a lot of my dad's, you know, his brothers, in arms, they lived here in Southern California. They were from different neighborhoods here in, in, in LA. You know, um, we used to come down here and they would make fun of us for being hillbillies. We'd bring them a bunch of fruit and, you know, <laughs> like whatever was in season and they would make fun of us and we would make, we thought they were weird because they were from here. They didn't know how to do certain things. And like, you know, <laughs> they would make fun of us and we would make fun of them and they would come up North and we would take them to the lake, to the rivers, you know, fishing, hunting, like doing things that we grew up doing. And they would, they were amazed and it was just funny. But now I understand I have brothers that, you know, that come from here and, 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 you know, it, I understand that now I understand a lot of what my dad went through because of the shared experience. I think shared suffering is, is, is the greatest bond that people can have. And I, and I know that these men suffered in war and they got drafted and my dad was, you know, called the wetback growing up and he hated that. And he, he was a, he was, a, he was a good soldier and he was a good patriot. And I grew up in a family that loved America. We loved this nation. And a lot of my cousins have served and a, a lot of my family on my dad's side, they have served in the military and they have gone to, you know, they fought in Fallujah and different places in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I signed up to join the military, but I just, I just didn't make it because I ended up getting, you know, arrested. But that was basically, you know, we had a pride in, in this nation. We had a pride in the, in, the, in, the, in the soil that we worked. We were a little bit, 
more primitive in, 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 you know, in our upbringing, in our values, in our work ethic. And, and, you know, my mom to this day still works, still works in that line of work. In the same line of work. The same line of work. But now, of course, she's the, she's like a floor manager for um, a fruit packing um, uh, company. Wow. So she kind of moved up, but she still works in in mainly citrus. Like, you know, she knows a good orange. She could look at an orange from the outside and know whether it's going to be good or not. No, that's no good. Take wow. this one, right? <laughs> and like, and she just has that eye. And they, they made her recently stay home because she's already 70 plus years old. Yeah. <laughs> and she was mad. She was angry. Like, I can work and, you know... My grandfather worked into like he was 85. Yeah. He was still in the field and still showing up. And, and you know, uh, that's the family that I come from. And I'm proud of that now, you know, because of the fact that, you know, there's nothing wrong with hard work. That's right. And, and you know, it, it's um, that generation, man, um, they, they were just go-getters. They were early risers. They just had crocodile skin, man. That generation could survive through anything. And they didn't cry about it. They didn't whine about it. You know, they, 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 they worked from sunup to sundown. They, they, it was just, you know, my mom, the same thing. She's in, the, in, the, in her 70s, and she still works. And she worked up in Alaska for 17 years in freezing cold weather freezing cold weather, like below, you know, 30 below, you know, type of weather. And, um, you know, <laughs> she, she would visit, you know, for about a month, uh, uh, a year. And when it was winter, this is when she would come over here. It was our winter, right? And um, you'd see her on a t-shirt, just a regular blouse. And it's, you know, it's California, you know, 63 is like freezing weather over here in Southern California. Nobody knows how to handle that. <laughs> and she's walking around, you know, at five in the morning for her daily walk with, you know, just, you know, a regular T-shirt. And everybody's looking at her like, you know, why don't you put something on? Like, it's it's freezing out here. And, and she just smiled, you know, she just smiled like, no, you don't know what freezing is, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. But that was a generation. I love that generation, man. It, it instilled values to uh, many of us. Um, and I think values that we didn't cherish when we were young. We overlooked those things. We, we didn't consider the value that they actually had. And we took, and we took a different route. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're growing up and, and it seems like a healthy, a healthy, you know, childhood as of this moment, there's a little rebellion with the teachers, you know, uh, authority figures. It, it seems like at what point do you end up, like what changes in your life in that in, in that portion of your of growing up? We're growing up in 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 this work and all these things that I told you, but we also, alongside that, I mean, coming from a big family, we also had, you know, most of the male members uh, of my family were either involved in 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 drugs, using um, heroin and 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 pills, uh, you know from back in the 70s, even back into the 50s and the 60s, you know, was the drug of choice, was heroin. And, 
you know, I had a large family, huge family. And then my grandmother's um, sister lived on, down the street and she had a huge family and we're all related and all of us together made up the neighborhood, part of the neighborhood. You know, we're like a big family and a lot of these guys were in, involved in crime and a lot of them had been to prison and they were in and out of, of, of prison and jail and, and, you know, the juvenile system and all that. So you also had that going on on the side. And, you know, so I remember back, you know, when I was like maybe seven years old, I, I knew how to do CPR, you know, and I, I learned how to do CPR because when someone would overdose on heroin, usually a guy that just got out of jail or prison and thinking he can handle whatever he was doing before he got locked up or, you know, whether he was drinking alcohol and using heroin and everyone would scatter, you know, and then, you know, my grandmother and my aunts and, you know, the females in, in my family, the women would come and step up to help this guy, whether he was a family member or, or somebody from a family we knew. And I remember my grandmother telling me to, you know, to pump his stomach while she went to go call 911. Of course, remember Back then, I don't even think it was nine one one. I think it was you had to dial. It was actually a number. a number, I think, right? Yeah, I think it, you had to dial directly the the, you know, the sheriff's uh, office or the fire department or whatever. And because um, I don't think nine one one had even came out yet. Well, at least not where I grew up. Not during that time. This was in the seventies. And um, yeah, I learned how to do CPR at an early age because of the overdoses that were happening on, on, on a weekly or monthly basis, you know, and, and there was a lot of drugs in the area, in the neighborhood where I grew up at. And, um, yeah, so those were the experiences that we had as, as, as young men, you know, growing up around it, we would, you know, walk around the corner in, in, my, in my grandmother's yard in the back of the houses. And, you know, either there would be someone uh, shooting up there, and they would catch it. We would catch them, and they would see that we would seen them, and they would hide, and they would get mad, and they would chase us out of the area, or prostitution, you know, because a, a lot of the women that were involved in drugs, you know, sold their body to use the drugs, and some of the guys took control over these women so that they would, you know, basically, you know, get money from them and you know line up clients or whatever. But these are the things that I grew up around, and you know. Um, on a, on a daily basis, it wasn't like a lot of my family members, you know, my uncles and my, my cousins died from drugs. They, you know, um, died from complications that drugs bring, you know, liver problems, you know, alcoholism, all that stuff was prevalent in, in, in my neighborhood. And, you know, like now they're saying, oh, well, there's a, there's a, um, uh, an opioid epidemic. And I'm like, that's a little late. I mean, that's been an <laughs> epidemic yeah. where I come from, you know, a, you know, a couple of other people in Connecticut die and it's a big deal. It's been happening in California forever. For as long as I can remember, yeah. I loved sports and, you know, I loved school as well. I was involved in a lot of the, I was a boy scout growing up. My, my, my father was a, was a, was a den leader. You remember what troop you were in? I can't remember the troop. I was looking for the pictures of it, but I couldn't find them. I think my sister has my pictures of that. And uh, my father was a, you know, den leader because he had, you know, the outdoor skills. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and 
when my dad came from Vietnam, uh, during this time, he was working as a, as a fireman up in the forest, in the Department of Forestry back then. And I used to go with them sometimes to work, and I would spend the day out in the open. And, you know, when, it wasn't, when they were not fighting the fires, they might be cleaning up brush or doing whatever they yeah. did. And um, I always wanted to be a fireman growing up. That's what I wanted to be. I couldn't see a fire truck or, or any of their equipment without me going over there, touching it and handling it. And they would chase me away from the truck. And, you know, I, I just was enthralled by that. Like, that was something that I thought, because my dad was a fireman. So, you know, when the oh, he city, was. yeah, well, with the Department of Forestry up, yeah, in, yeah. up in, the, in the mountains, you know, to fight forest fires and, and you know, and Smokey the Bear was a big part of my life. And, you know, like all these things were, I spent a lot of time in the forest because of that. And, you know, my dad, there was no animal my dad didn't let me handle or like, you know, go ahead, you know, catch them if you can catch them. And, mm. you know, but they bite, you know, and, and that was it. That was the, the, the extent or any body of water. Go ahead, get in. You want to get in, get in. Yeah. And that's how I grew up. That's a, that's a, that sounds like a dad's dad right there. You know, try it, see yeah. what happens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I, I'm a little stuck, uh, Joel, on the idea or on the visual of a seven-year-old doing CPR. I'm, what, 40? I'm about to hit 48. I still don't know how to do CPR. So if you if you have a moment around me, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're gone because uh, I don't know any CPR to this day. And just that visual, man. I, I mean, are you... Uh, have you been training that, uh, Joel, at all? I was, yeah, a couple of times. I worked at a restaurant, and we had to be uh, through a restaurant work. Um, but that's that's pretty awesome on the one hand, but pretty pretty sad on the other hand that you were in a community where that you need to pay attention to people overdosing on heroin, and then you need to know how to help them. Um, that that's that's rough for you know. I don't know how old you are, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten. But this this uh, Huckleberry Finn lifestyle though sounds pretty <laughs> interesting to me <laughs> out in the Central Valley. I mean that you're right. That's a beautiful spot near the Sequoia National Forest, and uh, but then you got the valley right there. So was your father kind of a bivocational? Like did he do, you know, the, the tree work part of the year, and then when they needed him for firefighting, you know, he would... he did both. Um, you know, he could work on the weekends with my grandfather, and my grandfather was my mother's father. But they took him in as a son because my dad was thrown out of his house when he was like 13 because my grandfather from his side, his father was abusive. He was an alcoholic, you know, and beat my grandmother and ran my dad out of the house. So my dad worked all his life and was on his own since he was a kid. And then they drafted him into the Marines. He comes back. He's fighting fires. And he's also the weed man. So he's selling weed. He's the biggest connection in, in the area because some of his brothers from Vietnam were moving large amounts of, of, of marijuana at the time. And, you know, he would he would get it on a, on a monthly basis and, and he would just, that's what he did. He sold weed and, and sometimes a little bit of coke in, in, in the late 70s. And, you know, cocaine was not popular during the 70s. It wasn't even heard of. You know, I guess you had to be at a at a certain, you know, econo economic level in order to know that this drug existed. And, you know, my dad had it and, he, you know, he would do not, not so much. But I remember, you know, that being a thing and people coming over and, you know, 
smoking weed with them and, 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 you know, buying a pound here or, you know, a couple ounces or whatever. And they used to sell pot to other people. And so I grew up with that as well. And, you know, uh, I remember uh, one time when I was five years old, I was in kindergarten and I went to school with the, what you call a lid of weed. I put it in my shirt pocket like my dad used to put his, his weed in his shirt pocket and I closed, closed it. And um, I went to school at kindergarten with, the, with a bag of weed in my front pocket and luckily it stood there all day. And I came home and my mom grabbed my shirt. What is this? Because she's seen a bulge there and it was a bag of weed. And she went off. She was angry. I remember my dad coming home from work and there was a big fight. But I just remember that clearly because I, and she said, well, what do you got this for? What's going on? I said, I just wanted to be like my dad because I seen him, you know, that's where he would tuck it away. And then, you know, we'd go. And back then, you know, you had either like a Pendleton or like a, an overshirt, a short sleeve, but like with buttons and, yeah. you know, so that's what I wore to school as well. You know, my little shirts and, and, you know, I remember that, but, you know, it was not just Huckleberry Finn. It was, it was also, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, drug dealing going on. And back then marijuana was a big deal. Yeah. And like now it's not such a big deal, but, you know, that, you know, my dad left you know, when, when I was about nine years old and, um, I can understand now what he was going through because I, I'm going through similar stuff. Like it's hard for, for me to connect with people or to feel a certain way about certain people. And, um, I think he was just struggling and, you know, he went out and, and he was a womanizer and, and my mom was home and she worked hard too. And uh, he left, and I didn't understand why. And this was about nine years old. And um, by the time I turned 11, I was, um, you know, I was hanging out in the neighborhood. And, you know, I never got jumped into a gang because my gang was my family already, you know. And it was just about you proving yourself and doing something and, and eventually committing a crime and not saying anything, I think, was like, one the initiation. The first, yeah, first major test. And, you know, but um, during that time, breakdancing was a big deal. So I, I focused a lot of my my time and my energy into breakdancing. You know, I was a B-boy. I used to break. I didn't pop. I didn't do none of that. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> See, I didn't do none of that. Cut I it out, to, Joe. Used, Cut it out, I Joe. To, <laughs> I used to be on the floor, you know. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> the kick worm. So, yeah, so all that stuff, you know, and, and, and it took up a lot of my my time, but I, I also got kicked out of school at that time. You know, um, I got kicked out of school and, and I got expelled from school, you know, for carrying a knife, you know, and basically me and my, my, my little buddies, my little friends, uh, I would say they were later my homeboys, but at that time we were young kids, you know, we didn't really, we went to the swap meeting, we stole a, bu a box of butterfly knives. So we sold some and we kept some and I had some at school and I was selling them. I wasn't using them. I just thought they were cool, you know, and uh, I ended up getting, you know, caught with, with, with two butterfly knives and they ended up, you know, expelling me from school. So I, my mom would go to work and I would just go to my grandmother's and at my grandmother's, you know, like 
during the day, you know, during the morning time, as you know, like a lot of a lot of the heroin addicts would come out and they would, you know, there was a lot of activity during that part of the day. And then, and I started selling weed. I started selling weed myself. Me and my homeboy, one of my older homeboys that was like maybe three, four years older than me, he used to get quarter pounds and and you know from his uncle. And then I I would you know get maybe like an ounce out of that and break it up into joints and break it up into, you know, little small bags, nickel bags or dime bags. and So, so, so this is like junior high is what, what it sounds well, like. I'm, I'm 11, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like sixth, sixth grade, grade, yeah. Like about sixth grade. And you're already doing this yeah. this type of deal. So, yeah, I'm, I'm there, in, you know, hanging out with, with, with the junkies and, and with the prostitutes and, and, and the people that were – alcoholics and all that. And I used to hang out at, at, at dope houses, you know, and sell weed. I didn't use any, any dope. I smoked weed at 11 and I sold it. And, um, but I got to see everything that they were doing and, you know, um, on a daily basis. And, and there would be people coming by and they would ask for me and I would come out and they would be like, wow, this is a little kid, you know, these guys were like in high school already, seniors or whatever, experimenting with marijuana. And some, some, some people were older and they would be like, wow, this kids right here. And, you know, you know, of course people thought they can get over on you, but you knew the business because you grew up around it. And, you know, um, growing up around it, I, I really, really, um, felt that I would rather live this lifestyle than to work in the fields with the other part of my family. Definitely, quote-unquote, easier money than on the fields, obviously. Yes. And, you know, so in between my breakdancing years and, and moving about and, you know, being popular in, in, in sports and in, in school, I was popular, but I just couldn't stay in school. I mean, I would get in trouble for fights. I would get in trouble. But this was a time when my dad had left the family and and I didn't understand then that I was going through, you know, anger issues over it. I didn't understand what was going on. My mom had to work all the time now because my dad wasn't there. And, um, it made me very angry, made me very angry. And I took it out on, on, on kids that, you know, that I didn't grow up with or didn't grow up with me or, or kids that had a better family. I noticed that I would strike out at kids that, had a better family and, you know, and it was random, but I knew that it was planned in the sense that I was wanted to lash out. And, um, you know, I remember at 11 years old, uh, my homeboys were ditching and I was, I was kicked out of school and we're, we were hanging out and we're, I was selling weed. My other homeboy was selling weed. We weren't doing nothing. We were just hanging out, getting high. And then, um, couple of guys uh, you know little homies came and they wanted to buy some weed but in the process they were breaking windows like doing like vandalism so then when they left we sold them a couple of joints which is like maybe a dollar or two worth of weed they took off and here come the cops so the cops come i'm on probation for getting kicked out of school and for beating up a couple of kids like random stuff and then um they arrest us for the crimes that our other friends committed, like destruction of property. They were going down the alleyway, breaking windows or whatever they were doing. And they took us to juvenile hall. 
So we went to juvenile hall. I remember it was my homeboy Scooby and 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 Chichis and and Joker. So those were their names, right? We go to juvenile hall. These guys are already fifteen. So they're older. Yeah, they're like 15, 14, 15. They've been in the game. Yeah, and they told us, all right, all you guys strip out, like take your clothes out, we're going to give you guys clothes and all that, and you have to take a shower and all this. I remember stripping down. I didn't even have pubic hairs yet. And I'm in juvenile hall, and this guy makes comment, one of the trustees, the guys that's working out there, he's a he's a, he's in juvenile hall as well, but he's been there and he's working, you know, cleaning up whatever they do. And he made comment, he made fun of me. And I got embarrassed. But my homeboy, my older homeboy, you know, went and sopped him up right there on the spot. You know, and it, it kind of made me feel more at ease. But that's just, you know, I hadn't even developed yet. And now I'm a kid, I'm already in juvenile hall, and I'm getting naked in front of a bunch of people. And I always remember that. I always remember that, like the first time I, I actually went to juvenile hall and I didn't just get booked, I was going to get housed. You know, it was a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, you're nervous and then someone's making fun of you. And, you know, it's just, um, but it, 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 it lends to how young I was and in being involved in that and all that. You, you know, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't think any of us will ever forget our first day in juvenile hall. It's like uh, embedded in you because this is like, you know, you know, for me, my experience was, you know, you, you hear all the cops when, you know, when you start getting, you know, pulled over or whatever, arrested and they let go from the station type of deal. And the cops will tell you and, you know, even the public at large. Right. You know, when you get in there, you know what happens to you to guys when you you're you're that young, you know what's going to happen to you. Right. And and you go to a juvenile hall on your first on your first day. Right. And that's in the back of your head. And for me, I was like, nah, I ain't gonna, it ain't going to swing like that. And I remember, uh, uh, and uh, Raz is here on, on the side, but I remember uh, uh, R&R uh, in uh, East Lake Juno Hall. Uh, you went in there, and the changing room is right, like, you make a right, and it's right there. I, I, I can remember this room very vividly. But, you know, you get your little jumpsuit on, right? Uh, I think it was Grays that they gave you in, in the beginning, and... And they sat, there was three rows of uh, uh, really thick wood that, you know, they were painted yellow, I remember that. And it was like uh, cemented and bolted to the floor. And I remember the, this one young cat uh, was sitting in front of me and and he hits me up, but he didn't hit me up like in a threatening way. He just kind of, you know, hey, where you from kind of thing, right? Well, for us, it means where you from? Right. And I took it the wrong deal because I'm... My mind, I'm 11 years old as well, and, and I'm thinking, nah, it ain't going down, right? Like, that thought is in my in my head, and I started swinging at homeboy. Like, I don't even know who this dude is, and, you know, we ended up throwing down right there. Uh, to this day, I, I, it'd be funny to ever, uh, you know, if I ever ran into homeboy, and, and I don't remember what gang he was from or anything, I just remember swinging at him. Because, again, that's your first day experience, and, you know, you've been told this is what happens, or, you know, you have an embarrassing moment. But we all remember that first day in juvie. Because that, that was that was like, you know, you get out, right? You get out and all your your little homeboys are like, dang, he just got out of juvie. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember too as well as that. Like the next day, they everybody's mom came to pick him up except for, for 
my homeboy Chichis, he had to stay there. His mom refused to pick him up. She said, keep him, leave him there, right? And I remember because he, he was my bunkie, he was my roommate, and I had to leave. And I said, hey, you know, are you going home? When, when you, you want to ride? Or like, they're like, no, his mom has to come pick him up. So she left him there about a week. But I just, you know, during that time, like, uh, I experienced that. And then, you know, there were a couple of times where I was accused of stuff that I didn't do. And I was convicted of things that I didn't do. You know, it just led to more trouble, more trouble. I ended up getting kicked out of school. And then they shipped me down to over here. I come to Los Angeles. I'm living with my with my dad. I remember getting off the bus and on 6th Street there. Uh, you know, back on the Greyhound was on 6th Street. And uh, I got off there, and, and my dad tells me, you know, um, you know, stay inside, don't come out. I, of course, I didn't listen. I wanted to go see what, because, you know, you had to have a ticket to be up top in the, in the in where the bus is, where you can come in. And my dad was going to go and, and get me. But I came down, and what, right when I came down off the, you know, outside of, of, of the bus station, I remember seeing a bunch of activity, and I really liked it because it was like, a lot of, of drug dealing, and you had prostitution right there. And I was just like, it was like watching a movie. Yeah, it was just a trip. And then my dad shows up, and I end up going to school down there. And everything was good, you know, um, until they found out that I was from up north. That, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a culture shock. That's a gang shock because, like, you know, that you're, you're from the opposite side of the world to us and what are you doing here uh, how'd they find out well they found out because there was a girl that liked me and she happened to be a very beautiful young lady you know we're seventh grade or whatever and and she was in eighth grade and she really liked me and and she happened to be a gang member's sister <laughs> one of the lead gang members there from um uh, i think it was Eastside torrance because i was living in carson so that was the neighborhood that was there, and that was his sister, and 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 you know, I had a couple of friends that were from Tortilla Flats that they knew where I was from. They weren't tripping. One of them had a brother that lived in Delano, and like, oh yeah, I have cousins that live up there, and like he wasn't really. They were from Mexico. They had barely came, you know, maybe ten years prior to that. So, like, he wasn't really. He had more issues with the neighborhoods that were there at the school than yeah. with me. So those were my little friends. I had a little circle of friends. Most of them were, were you know, fresh f from Mexico. They moved over here, and they weren't really tripping on that, and, and those were my buddies. And then they found out, and, you know, um, I ended up getting my dad's gun and going to school. And um, I pulled out the gun. I pointed it. I didn't fire it. And... Um, it just started a bunch of, of problems. I couldn't, you know, the girl didn't, wasn't trying to start problems. She would just like me and I liked her. She yeah. was, and, you know, we became friends and then that's how I came onto the radar because one of the other guys in the gang liked her and she didn't like him. She liked me and it was just like, you know, classic, uh, you know, schoolyard stuff, but it, the implications of gangs, you know, made it a bigger issue than what it was. And I was scared. I was afraid. And I was afraid to tell my dad because my dad didn't believe in, you know, being afraid. He was never a warlike person. Never, 
sought problems, but he was one to to defend himself and his friends. He he was that man, you know. So how, how long were you here in, in Southern California? I was probably here like maybe six months. Oh, very short. Very yeah, short it was stay. a short stint. I mean, it didn't take long, and um, you know, uh, th once they found out, I couldn't go to school because there was yeah. so many people, and then, you know, so I I had to tell my dad, and you know. I told him what I did, and he's like, oh, no, you can't be doing that. Like, I told you never to. My dad wasn't a big gun enthusiast, you know, because he had seen enough, and he had had enough of that. But, you know, he had one in, in the home, and and I ended up taking it, and he, he felt like, you know, I would get into bigger trouble. So he sent me back, and I ended up going to a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, like a private school. They had to pay for me to go to school because I couldn't go to none of the schools in in the area where I grew up because I was kicked out of the whole you the know school system yeah the whole school system because yeah. I had got kicked out of numerous schools so basically my grandmother his mom paid for me to go to this school and uh, I did well in that school I did very good you know I had a lot of fun you know um you know we had a bible study class and all that and I didn't mind that much you know, and, and I did pretty good. And then summer came and, and and that's when, you know, cocaine hit big in the United States. And it was crazy here in L.A. with coke and, and up north, too. It was just, you know, there were some parts, some cities and towns that we would go to. And there were just five, six, seven guys would run up to your car and, you know, they wouldn't even measure it anymore. That's how big it was. It would just pull a piece of paper and just pour it in there and, you know, ask for 20 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever. And it was big, big issues of, of, of cocaine. And then, so that's when I was actually like really in the neighborhood now. And, 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 um, I started selling cocaine. So we're now like in 84, 85, somewhere around there. So this is early 86 now. 86, okay. So this is early 86, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm selling coke now. My homeboy's selling coke, and I actually used to live in a, in a drug house. It, it was a nice place, a nice home, but my, my homeboy's mom sold heroin. And then when coke kicked, she started selling cocaine. I used to be the doorman of this house, and I would have the key around my wrist, and I would open it from the outside and let only certain people in that she said I could let in. And I would see people coming in and out, you know, to buy large quantities of, of heroin and, and cocaine. And that's where I lived, you know, for the most part. And we smoked weed. He was my best friend. He was a little older than me, but he was my best friend, you know, growing up. And uh, now he says, hey, man, I got this, you know, when I came back from L.A., he's like, hey, I got this. This stuff right here, man, I want you to check it out. And I was like, all right, let's go. We'll go to the room. And he had some Coke. And uh, we snorted some Coke, you know. And um, it, it, it was amazing, right? I was like, wow, you know, like, this is, like, now we're doing grown-up stuff. And he's like, yeah, we're going to sell this. We're going to make money. We're going to, and we started making money. We started selling it. But the violence, you know, grew and, and. And you know, during a drug deal, I, I was selling to one of one of my homegirls that that she was a very beautiful woman, and and um, I remember, uh, you know, a quarter gram was twenty five bucks, 
like not 22, not 23, 25. And she ended up giving me like $18 and said she was going to give me the other stuff. And I gave it to her and she didn't pay me. And I went and confronted her. And then, you know, some guy tried to, hey, man, leave her alone. It, it was nothing about me trying to pursue her. It was me trying to get my money. And, and you know, he started getting loud. So, you know, I stabbed him. And then my other homeboys came out. They seen and they started stabbing him. Then his homeboy came out and we put him down, you know. And and, and it was it was it was it was a lot of blood. It was horrible. You know, I that was the first, you know, major crime that I had been arrested for. I had already, you know, stabbed people uh, prior to this. And now here I am, in you know, full of blood and, you know. Um, I remember my mother was out of town on, at a wedding. And I didn't go home. I ended up going to my grandmother's house. And um, the cops, the sheriffs, and the detectives, they came and they arrested me. And I still had blood on me and on my shirt and on my shoes and stuff. And they took me in. And in order to protect my, my homeboys, my older homeboys that were there, that you know, we got two guys in the hospital, they're dying. And it's early in the morning and I'm, you know, there and I'm like, hadn't really slept because we're out, you know, drinking and partying the night before. And then, you know, I, I said, man, I got to take the, I got to take, the, I got to take this. Whatever happens, I have to take it. So I told him, yeah, I threw the knife over there. I had the, the sheriffs looking for the knife and the detectives and everybody and everybody in the neighborhood were looking at me and you know I had my cousins my older cousins at the time they're probably like 30 years old they're like telling me not to say nothing making gestures at me and my other cousin tried to let me out of the car and they opened the car the cops seen it and then they started like a big kind of like a mini like scuffle with the cops and then finally they took me away they didn't meet, read me my rights and I had already admitted to a crime you know looking back on that I you know, I didn't realize that. And they held me in interrogation for, I think they wanted to see if, if these guys were going to make it or they were going to die. Well, they ended up making it, you know, but they were severely, you know, they had multiple, you know, stab wounds from different knives. And so I ended up going to boys, the boys ranch for that. You know, I, I uh, now I'm doing serious time and I, I get out like on a, on a weekend pass, like maybe four months later, and everybody comes up to me. It's 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 probably like Christmas time. I think that was the reason why they let me out because it was Christmas and they let us out. I had been doing fairly good, and I had a lot of homeboys there at the at the camp. A lot of big guys that were my homeboys. They just happened to be big guys, and they were like popular guys in the camp. And so I was good. And I get out, and everyone comes up to me, all the homeboys, everybody. Dudes that had been in San Quentin, that had been in Folsom and all these prisons, they came to shake my hand. And, you know, I felt accepted. I felt proud that I didn't say nothing. That's why they came up to me and they told me that, you, you know, like you did a good thing. You did right. Not by doing the crime, but by not saying anything. And um, I remember that was like basically when I knew that I was from that neighborhood where I was a trusted now member. You know, every time I would meet different homeboys they would get out and then you know they would ask me like well who's your dad and I would tell them who my dad was and they, and they were like oh yeah he's a he's a good dude he's a very good dude 
you know, my, my dad was well-respected. He never claimed the neighborhood. He never was part of that because he went to the war. And when he came back, he was on another, you know, on another trajectory here down in, in Southern California. But, um, I mean, it felt good to be, you know, to be respected as 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 someone as an equal because these are older men that are coming up to me, and I'm just a kid still. I'm still a little kid. And there, there there's something about that, right? Like that pat on the back, on the back from like older homeboys um, when you're you know 14, 15 years old, and you have that you know ex-convict that has done hard time, and um, they come to you and. It, it for some for some reason it, that validation, that street validation, comes upon you, and that that street respect. For some reason, means something to us, and it was huge back then, you know, as kids. But then it leads to <laughs> worse things. It always does. From getting stories from other homeboys and stuff like that, and you hear, and it's almost like. Everyone went through that, where they went under the wing of someone, and it was also an older dude, a handshake, a gesture, a pat on the back, uh, you did good. Those words carried a lot of weight for a young gang member, and, and, and you were received as, you know, you're part of the family now, like you're part of the, the group, the team. Whatever it was, right? You were proud of the you were part of the crowd, the inner circle. What happened after that? I mean, that 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 meant a lot, obviously. I remember, um, you know, after the my first initial, what they call a weekend pass, you could get out, you know, Friday evening, and you got to come back Monday morning, and now you're you know you're doing a program, you're going to school there in camp and doing whatever you're doing. Most of it's just horse playing and sports play and all that, you know, and fighting and, you know, doing all that stuff. So I ended up running away from this camp. I escaped eventually. And my homeboy, he, he the same homeboy, my my best friend's widow, he tells me, hey, man, um, I got this thing right here. I want you to check it out. So we had a double barrel shotgun and I had seen guns before. We had carried guns before, but... You know, now he's, you know, he's still selling coke and he's, he's now he's making money. Got some nice car, brand new car. And, you know, I'm, at the time I'm, I'm like 13 and he's like maybe 16. And, um, so we started hanging out and, you know, now we're carrying guns and, and we have access to, to weapons and, you know, his mom had got arrested and she went back up to prison and now the family's kind of like divided his family and, and. You know he's doing his thing and he has his portion of the business and we're we're doing business and we're making money and but we're also you know gang banging now, you know, against different neighborhoods against other rivals that were selling drugs as well and you know we hated everyone that was dealing because they're cutting in on our profits and now we're starting to learn you know, you know that there's more to it than just you know selling a dime bag on the on, on, on the side of the street, you know, on the side of the roadway. And um, we end up, um, so we end up started, we started doing robberies now and, and as well as selling uh, drugs. And, I, and, you know, there was nothing more that, that euphoric feeling than, than doing a robbery. And I got hooked on it. 
you know, um, I got hooked on it so much that, you know, I would rather do that than, than to sell to sell drugs because it gave me a sense of power and control. And that was the, the top of the food chain because I never felt like the drug dealer. I never did because I always thought that they were weak. I always thought that they were greedy. I always thought that they were soft. You know, there was just something untrustworthy. About it. Yeah, untrustworthy, just slimy. And I mean, I didn't feel like they were the top of the food chain. So we started doing, you know, robberies. And I remember when my homeboy, Chango, he got out of YA. He got out of press and he was buffed, man. He got out. He was one of our age group. And, and, and I remember it was like 4th of July in 87, around that, in July. I know it was in July. And I had a girlfriend over and we were in the room. And then they knocked on the window and they said, hey, man, we got to go. Chango just got out. You know, we got to go. So I get out of the, I get it, I get, jump out of the window and I leave the girl there and then I go with my homeboys and, and, and they're in the alleyway and they're in a big like LTD, big old boat of a car. I can't remember exactly. It was a Ford. It was huge. It was like a lime green color, metallic lime green. And here he is and he ain't got no shirt on. He's big. And then the <laughs> other guy don't got no shirt on. And, you know, like. Everybody else is yeah, all sucked up. <laughs> everyone else is, yeah, a little kid still. And he's like, you know, and, and we all shake hands and like, you know, do all that. And then I said, well, wh where are we going? They said, we're going to go hit the United, right? So I didn't know what that meant at first. So we go into the drive driveway of of. Of, of, of a supermarket so we had been doing smash and grab jobs we got into that so now we're gonna go and do a, a big smash and grab because in the back of this grocery store they had a, a, a sporting goods shop with a bunch of handguns shotguns rifles whatever you can just guns so we're sitting there in the back seat there's 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 four of us in the back and two in the front and we're in the back plotting on how we're going to do it. We got sledgehammers, we got bolt cutters, we got bars to put the, the guns onto the, through the, through the, uh, through the trigger. Uh, we're going to put the guns on the rack of the, so while we're talking about it, this guy punches the gas. The two guys in the front are brothers. They're drunk. They've been drinking because his brother just got out. They're been celebrating. We're kind of sober. We maybe drink one beer, maybe two. And we're through the window, through the front of the shop. Smash the window. Chango, <laughs> so, so Chango, there was a plan. <laughs> yeah, so Chango hits his head on on the front windshield in the process because we go over, you know, the the little curb, the little curb part. He hits his head, immediately starts throwing up like just right. Hits his head and just starts, and he was the sledgehammer guy because he felt, well, I can carry the sledgehammer. I'm big. I'm buff. Yeah. Well, he's in there past like just. <laughs> We had to jump out the car and run, but what you don't realize when there's that much glass is when glass on top of glass, you're going to slide. So my my homeboy slipped, he fell, he cut himself, but he we kept going. We ran to the back of the store. We did what we were, we're teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Run to the back of the store. We started getting all of them. Boom, 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 boom. And we come out. And Chang was still throwing up. You know, still right there, dizzy. We get in this car and we take off. We got a a bunch of handguns, you know, 38s, 357s, 380s, 22s, like just yeah, so many guns. And um, 
Now we start carrying weapons everywhere we go. We got guns. You know, we got power. We start selling the guns to the drug dealers, mainly the Mexican drug dealers, the guys that have real money and that are serious, and they're, they're not really a threat to us because we're getting the, you know, the dope from them. And, um, you know, now we're running around with two pistols in our pants and, you know, in a big carload of guys. And, like, now we're shooting up, you know, places and, and people and all that. And it be, it started to get more serious. And the robberies were, like, you know, just started getting, you know, out of control. And I ended up getting... <clears throat> I ended up getting arrested for uh, for a kidnap and, and carjacking. Back then, it wasn't called carjacking. No. There was no such thing. Yeah. Just regular GTA. Yeah. So it was GTA with the robbery kidnap. Yeah. And um, I had, like, so many years of crimes, like, so many crimes. Every day was just a crime. Yeah. You know, I was a walking crime spree. And you know, you, you mentioned something about, the, the like, robbery becomes a habitual thing. You do get a high off of that. And the next thing you know, you're out there doing three, four, five armed robberies per night and into the day sometimes. I mean, it just gets, I'm pretty sure that you have probably the same experience as well. It, it, there's something about that. I don't know why. And then, you know, you look at uh, police departments and they, they, they always have robbery homicide in the same department because it always ends up in that department every single time but go it, ahead it ends up bad you, yeah. you know and and you start taking risks the bigger the risk the bigger the high and yeah. you know like i ended up getting arrested thank god and and, and i went to the youth authority and and uh, i ended up in california youth authority and and um that was like my first experience with with actually up close gang banging against uh, you know Sureños and and I was I was a Norteños from up north, and um, we went to school and and you know um, we met people from different parts of the state and like now it's a little bit bigger it's a little more organized things are a little bit different, and I remember standing on the yard me and me and one of my one of my closest friends growing up. Um, his name was Perro, and uh, he uh, was like, "Hey, man, we can't wait till we get to the joint so that we can, you know, we could, we could join the the familia." You know, that was our goal at fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, and that's what we wanted to do. So we stayed there until till we were eighteen, and then um, I ended up getting out and and. You know, I, pu I put in to join the service. You know, I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I wanted to do good, but I ended up, you know, having a family problem where I just started, you know, it was an excuse for me to go back, you know, to robberies and to into dealing dope and doing all that. And, you know, I, I ended up going to going to prison at, at 18. So I'm in prison. And, you know, when I get to the county jail, I start getting involved with the northern structure, you know, because they're there and they're the ones that run the daily program for, for you know, the inmates there for the northerners. And, and, and I start getting involved. I start learning. And I'm, like, really, really enthralled with this lifestyle and, like, how to make weapons and, and you know, how to strategize and, you know, you know how to how to bring in drugs and like just all the things that how to make bombs. I learned how to make a bomb and and you know like 
all these things I learned, you know, how to make a crossbow, how to make a spear, all these things were, were of great interest to me. You know, and, and working out in organized fashion with the other, you know, members and, and, and associates. But back then, associates were called sympathizers. Like, you know, you were sympathetic toward their cause and you were not a member, but you were a sympathizer. And I started to learn the history of, of California gangs, you know, and, and, you know, you learn how to do codes and you, you learn a lot of different things. You learn how to write well. They, you know, you got to go to school, you got to do all these things. And I ended up going to, you know, to prison. And uh, they sent me to Mule Creek, my first prison, level three. You know, pretty soft. But back then, all those guys I didn't know at the time were dropouts. So I ended up getting into it with one of the guys that formed the, the Bulldog Gang, right? Not because where he was from. But because, you know, I had lent him something, and when I asked him to return it, he said that I was burnt. Hmm. So I told him, nah, I'm not going to be burnt. You're going to be burnt. He said, you know, you shut your mouth or I'm going to roll you off this yard. I said, you know what, you shut your mouth, I'm going to roll you off this yard. He was a big, buff man. He was like maybe like 38, 40 years old, right? Big, huge. Back then they had weights. And I'm... Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not no skinny, you know, punk at this time. I'm 18 years old. Yeah. So then one dropout got me to to stab the other dropout because the other guy seen it. We went in the cell. We got in a fight. I attacked him as soon as he came in. I wasn't going to give him a chance. He was really big, you know. So luckily I gave him a shot in the nose and he couldn't see. And he was just, I came out. They thought I was going to come out. And mangled, mangled up, I came out, I walked out, he came out bleeding, and, and you know, there was too much tension over that, and, and you know, a guy said, hey, I could get you a weapon, you could take care of this, you know, so that's what I did, because I felt that it was too much of a threat, and then I ended up going in the shoe. And while I was in that segment, you know, we were, we were talking about it, and everyone was saying that, you know, this was not the place to be, well, we ended up going to Corcoran Shoe. This was like 91. So I'm, I'm in Corcoran Shoe in 91. And um, when I get there, I remember they tell me, hey, um, you know what time it is, huh? I really didn't know what they were talking about, but I, yeah, I know what time it is. <laughs> you gonna pretend like you know what time yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> you always gotta pretend that you know what's up, right? And so I'm, I'm basically in the big leagues now. You know, I'm, I'm in Corcoran Shoe and... and we're going out to the yard. Every 10 days is a gladiator fight. Every 10 days we're fighting against the Sureños, you know, the white uh, supremacist gangs and all these people. And, you know, there were a couple of times where there was like eight or nine guys on the yard against me and my Sally and they attacked and we would attack and it would just like you get addicted to that as well. So my addiction to robberies went to an addiction of, of, of violence and of like, Risking my life, basically. Because the guy that was above us, the gunner, he was shooting real bullets. And they were, you know, they would give you a warning shot, which was also a bullet. You know, um, I think it was a 37 millimeter gas launcher is what they call it on the write-up. So, you know, I acquired enough write-ups to 
to get me a ticket up to Pelican Bay. So from Corcoran Shoe, they shipped me up to Pelican Bay. At the time, I already kind of knew because I had a couple of guys that I knew that had been up in Pelican Bay that it was, it was um, isolation mostly that, you know, really missed. But I'm a kid at the time. I really don't care. You know, I'm just, I don't care. I'm, I'm just a kid, like just doing dumb things. And so they send me up there. And I remember I, I, I we get there and they, they, they strip us out and then, you know, and again, they don't give me any of my property back. I'm like, hey, usually when they strip you out, they give you your T-shirt, your boxers, all your stuff. They didn't give us nothing. They said, go to your cell. I remember the cell was 222. They racked 222, and both me and my Sally, we walk up there naked. You know, when you're in prison and you're naked, you got to choose what are you going to block. Are you going to block the front or the back? I chose to block the back. Put my hands behind my back. And, and everyone's looking at you, and you're walking up there naked. And I remember the stairs were really, really spiky. They had, like, like teeth coming out of the stairway. And man, it hurt my feet. But I tried to walk real cool and look real tough, right? And, like, I didn't want to show them. Like, that hurt my feet. And I'm naked. I'm naked. So then they we get in the cell. They close the cell door. And then the guy next to us is like, hey, 222. 222. Like, yeah, what's up? You know, like, what's going on? What you need? Like, where are you from? And then my Sally started answering him. I told him, hey, man, don't, don't, don't answer that, dude. I told him, we're naked in here, homes. We're not going to be answering. Let us get our ropa. Let us get situated and we'll holler at you, you know? I was mad because they left us naked right there. You know, it was just another way of stripping you down and humiliating you. It's a mind game. Yeah, it's a mind game. And, and you know... After that, you know, I end up going out, you know, now I'm a member of the structure. Already at this time, I'm, I'm a member of the, of the Northern Structure, which is what, what's called uh, Nuestra Raza. That's, how, that's how, what the structure's called. And um, I'm, I'm considered a brother, you know, a bro. And um, I end up going out to the main line there in Pelican Bay. Pelican Bay was like a revolving door. If you're not validated yet, you're going to get validated. I went out to B facility and, um, you know, one of, one of the guys there that was from up north had, you know, had stabbed one of the MM members in New Folsom. And he was wanted by, by the MM, by the Sureños that were there. And we were going to go out and it was going to happen. And it's the same in Pelican Bay. The concrete yard's the same as Corcoran Shoes concrete yard. Same exact thing. We went out there, and, and they're like, all right, get ready for Mexican yard. That's what they called it. So the guys from down south and the guys from up north would go to yard together, and then they would, then on the opposite day, they would run black and white yard with others. Others would be in any other race aside from blacks and whites. So you know that was going to happen every time the yard, you know, and these are guys that really came from Corcoran Shoe or got out of Pelican Bay Shoe that had bad blood for years. And they put us on the same yard together to, to program, and, you know, it, it never worked. <laughs> it never worked, and, and we end up going back to the shoe, you know, for another stabbing. And while I was there in Ad Seg waiting to get fully processed and get my shoe term, we started getting into it with the guys on the tier, and then, like, it was just, like, 
just chaos. The cops there were very corrupt. And it just, I don't know where all these big cops, they were in Pelican Bay, they were like six foot four. All the cops were huge. And they would pull us out of the cell and have full riot gear and, you know, wait for the first guy to say something and just make an example out of them and just start beating them with the, with the batons. And, you know, after a while, I grew accustomed to that to where I wouldn't shut up. I would keep talking. And, you know, I remember a cop grabbing me by my face and, 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 and you know, forcing me, trying to force me to, to shut up. And I wouldn't shut up. And I wasn't afraid, and I was ready to die. And I had seen people killed already on the yard, shot to death or stabbed to death. So at this point, like, it didn't really matter. And then I ended up getting out of the shoe and going back to the mainland again. And I ended up in, in um, on a facility. You know, things were a little bit better there. There was a lot of drugs coming in. There was a lot of organization. It was really, really, it was really, really, it was a big yard. It was a lot of people. And... And I'm I'm uh, I'm there, and uh, things were going good. And we find out that you know a couple of these guys were 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 not in line with what we're doing. So we decide that we're gonna remove them off the yard. And and in that process, they they caught wind and they attacked, and they ended up shooting my Sally. And they shot another one of my homeboys. They shot my Sally in the thigh. They shot my my homeboy in the in the calf, and then they shot the other one, his big toe, they shot it off, and then Chuy Castillo, uh, little Jesse Castillo, they shot him through the neck and the head. They went through his neck and came out the side of his head. And so he was gone? He was gone. And they thought it was me. Everyone thought it was me because we looked, we're the same height, we're the same build. We look similar to each other. We talk similar. And I remember that day we were there because we were so close to the incident. We, we were right there, right in the middle of it. And nothing happened to us. Hmm. Now, now from, from the time that you end up in Corcoran to this incident already, how many years have you been in from that time to that? Three years. In just three years, this, this is already happening. In three wow. years. Very short, short time. I remember that, like, clearly. There was so many bullets that were flying that the whole yard was full of gunpowder. You could smell the gunpowder. You could see the smoke rising. Every building gun was shooting. The main gunner was shooting. Everybody was shooting. And back then, it was a dangerous policy in the 90s. In the 80s and the 90s, like they would just shoot. And they were shooting real bullets. They were not marshmallows. They were real. Yeah. And they were coming hot. And, they, and you know, like, you can't really blame the cops either because... When people are in a riot, they're moving in all different directions. And, you know, people are pulling out weapons, and this is a level four maximum security facility, and it's a 180 design, and, like, it's 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 pretty violent place. So they end up sending me, you know, into the shoe for an investigation and all this, and... A lot of the guys are telling me, like, what happened, like, the bigger, you know, the older homies that are there, like, asking me to, you know, file a full report and, like, you know, what happened and why this wasn't done or that wasn't done. And, you know, somebody had died and, and you know, multiple guys got shot that day and, you know, we were doing what we believed to be right, you know, but 
whatever the case may be, uh, you know, years later, the lawyers and the investigators came to talk to me, the people that were filing a lawsuit on behalf of Chewy's family. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I told them they knew a lot of stuff that I was amazed that they knew. And I, I told them the truth. I told them what happened and I give them the names of everyone and all that. You know, because I, I felt that that was my only way of helping to give justice to his family and, you know, what, you know, some some type of answers. But this is like 93. Yeah. And in 93, uh, human rights organizations from the streets, there was no, there was none of that happening yet. It was still rock and roll all the way through and awful at all uh, the four level yards. I mean, it was still rocking and rolling everywhere. You know, um, they weren't in their, putting their hands to to try to, you know, make some noise with local media or anything like that. So you're in there and you gotta you gotta play the game. Period. You go places and 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 the the cops tell you straight up, like you mess with us, we will kill you. Not not we yeah. will write <laughs> you up or we will beat you up or anything. They'll they tell you, they whisper in your ear and you know it's serious. But I remember this <laughs> I remember this dude um, when I was in ADSEC during that time waiting to go to the shoe. Uh, we called him Tough Acting to Nacting. <laughs> Tough Acting to Nacting. Because this dude hated everybody. He hated everybody. And back then, there was no Sally. You didn't sign a paper for a Sally. Like a guy would show up at the door and that was that your was Sally. That was your Sally. <laughs> so this dude was, was Mexican, biker, right? He hated white people. He hated cops, he hated blacks, he hated North, he hated, he hated everybody. Yeah. So this dude would come out and he'd be mad-dogging us, tough acting, tough acting, right? So they give that guy a celly every day because he threw a tray at the cop, I remember. Threw it out the, the tray slot and the cop said, all right, I got something for you. They brought a celly every day, a different celly. And as the days went by, every day, not like yeah, today, yeah. The next day, he would get a Sally yeah. bigger and bigger and different races, different gangs, right? And as they would, he, the guys would come in, we would tell them, hey, that guy up there, watch out, right? Like, And every day, they got bigger and bigger until they got this guy that was here in the tier with us. And he said, hey, I want to go up there. I'll take care of that. And he ended up stabbing him. And and, and, and he got shot by the by the cops, you know, this tough acting, tough acting. He broke down and begged and you know everyone laughed at him right yeah. because he was he begged you know he begged the captain to you know to get him out of there and that yeah. he 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 would comply you know and like it took a week you know yeah. so that was the ballad of tough acting to act and it took him about <laughs> a week to get some get right <laughs> you know what i mean so just little things like that were always going on yeah as well as the drugs and the gangs and the violence and the I ended up getting out and um, to the streets. To the streets. So I get out to the streets and now I'm. Um, but before I had gotten out, I you know. I I end up you know. Following through with what my life goal was, and that was to, to become a member. And I became a member very young because at the time, unbeknownst to me, one of the one of the generals was from my neighborhood. I didn't know. He knew my dad. He knew my family. I didn't know who he was. He'd been locked up since the 70s. This is, you know, the early 90s. 
So I, you know, I was probably a little kid. I didn't, I didn't know who he was, and yeah. you know, but um, not because of him, but because of other people that that really thought that, you know, they liked me. I was a good guy. I was smart. I would catch on. I was just, you know, I was a problem solver. Yeah, I was a problem solver. I was a leader, not just someone that sat around and like okay. But I mean, I followed orders, but like, you know, like I, I was a benefit to the gang basically. Is how they see it and how you see it as a recruiter, you see that. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, become a member of the Nuestra Familia, and I, you know, one of the youngest ages. And um, when I'm released from prison, you know, I'm released and, you know, at the level of a commander. And I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm in my 20s, and that's, you know, that's a pretty high level, but it's... It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, so... I remember my my homeboy homeboys from my my area, not my neighborhood, from my area. They came in. There was so many of them in there. They were they were all in a minivan. They had a minivan and they came and got me. And you know, it was it's kind of like the movies where like everyone comes and they're giving you money and they're giving you you know drugs and they're giving you stuff like here 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 this nah man like no, this is just for me to use, you know, so you can get on your feet. Everyone, that's what everyone says. I'm going to help you get on your feet. And then they say, oh, by the way, I have this issue, <laughs> right? So everybody has problems. Yeah. Everyone has issues, and they feel that you can solve them, you know? And that's that's pretty much the first day that I got out. I'm already with gang members. I'm already, you know, uh, you know, pistols and dope and like problems and business as usual. Yeah, and it's just neighborhoods, not just one neighborhood, but there's you know, yeah. everyone needs you know something for some reason, and you know they're they're selling drugs and you know they got gambling going on. They got just different types of crimes that hustles is what we call them. You know, these guys are doing robberies. These guys are out of control. We need to get them in check. This is going on and. So that's basically now I'm immersed in this lifestyle of organized crime, you know, and and I don't see any I don't see anything wrong with what what I'm doing, and I believe that you know um, this is the right thing to go do, and 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 you know um, I have the ability to recruit members, you know, as 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 structure members, as as strong associates. To stop from someone from getting harmed, I could do that too. I could have people harmed. You know, I could have, you know, drug houses shut down, whatever, you know, like whatever's going on out there, you know, it could be done, you know, with with the help of, of, of the family and, and with my say and whatever. And some of the guys that I came up with now, they got to go because they're not producing or they're not following through with whatever they're supposed to do. And now... Were heavily involved in, in in that, and you know it, it started to get sad at that point. But I didn't really it didn't really affect me, you know. And and so you know we're involved in in bank robberies and 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 home invasion, knocking down other drug dealers, like whatever whatever you know we did, it was organized. A question, Rudy. Uh, what about what year is this? That this is '97. Uh, and at what what point did you 
uh, I'd like to hear about your encounter with God or, or when did God come into the picture? God is, is oh, it's a long way off at this point, like 10 years <laughs> from, you know, from that point. So I did end up sending me up to Salinas. I ended up going over there to, to take control over that and to watch over that, that, um, that regiment, you know, and, and that's the flagship of, of, of the familia. That's like the main place. And I ended up getting caught up there and, and getting arrested in conspiracies and, and, and all that. And, you know, confidential information, all this stuff. I ended up getting locked up. And from there, you know, I come back. I'm automatically, I'm validated. I'm in the shoe. I, I got to stay there, stay in the hole. And then... um they send me to Corcoran when I leave reception and I go to Corcoran shoe. I'm back at Corcoran, you know, and I stay there, you know, for a while. And then, you know, just the politics are, are you know, just it's it's pretty heavy now. And, and, and it, I end up there and, and I stay there for a few years. And I had a cousin that was uh, that was, uh, you know, he was an officer and 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 he. Uh, they transferred me to Tehachapi. So while I was in Tehachapi, um, <laughs> that's when I, I started to have, God started, I think the whole thing, I really see God's hand in it now. Back then I didn't see it. Yeah, you're in right? the mix. Yeah, I'm in the mix. I don't, I don't, I don't, I ain't really too much worried about that. And now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like one of the heads of the education and the recruitment process and the indoctrination process of gang members. And, and, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm writing now. I'm sending out stuff to everyone and I'm writing little books, things like that, you know, on, on for, for, for gang members. And, and, and then, um, so, uh, I end up in Tehachapi and I didn't want to be there. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to, and they say, no, you're not, you're not going to the Bay. That's what the gang told me. You're not going to leave there. You're staying there. You know, we need you there. You're going to be there. And I thank God this day that 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 happened because I ended up staying there and I and I, I encountered a deacon. He's he, he's a Catholic. That was the only service they ran was Catholic service, but he he would say openly, "You don't gotta be a Catholic. You know, we're just gonna have a Christian service, and that's it." I had never been to a shoe that they ran church. You know, they used to mm. run church on Monday, and he'd give us like fifteen minutes to talk about football because you know. Everyone would be excited, but he learned that let the men be men. He loved the Raiders. He loved Notre Dame, you know, and we would talk football for 15 minutes and then we'd go into our service. And sometimes as we were waiting to leave, you know, we would have one-on-ones with them. Yeah. And I remember the the nuns and the priests and all them would come from the, the Archdiocese of, of Los Angeles and they did amazing things. They said, we, Rudy, we'll pay for you to go to college. But back then, we couldn't go to college in the shoe. Yeah. And they told me, just get out, and we'll get you the education so that you could come out and help the youth. And I'm not going to get out. and I'm not going to, like, yeah, you will, you know, with God. So he, I remember him telling me, Deacon Davis, he tells me, he tells me, you know what, Rudy? If Jesus was here, He'd be in the shoe preaching to you guys. He wouldn't be on the level one. He wouldn't be in the level three or any of that. He'd be right here. With the worst. With the worst.
And he told me that. If Jesus was here, he would be from where I was from. He wouldn't be from Brentwood or from anywhere nice. He said he would have grew up picking fruits and building stuff around where I grew up at. And I was like, I went back to myself like, wow. Like it, it really moved me. So then, one last thing before I actually had an experience to change was one of these guys, there was one brother, he was a member, and he was out in the streets, and he started helping out youth. And they murdered him for that, for getting kids off of gangs. They killed him. So one of these guys that did it, was coming back from federal prison, from the holding. And I I lied to him and told him that I was no longer involved in the familia and all that, and that my goal was to kill him. So I had to, I had to play the part for like four months. Moved him in the cell. I had him in the cell. This guy was in YA with me. We were friends. And I was going to kill him. And I had the knife. And I had a rope. And before I did it, I prayed to God. I said, God, like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this. And I read Psalm 27, and, and I did it. I started to stab him. <laughs> And he had long hair, and I grabbed him by his hair. But luckily, the knife hit his head eventually, and it bent. And then some guy down the tier called for toilet paper, and the cop came to give the guy toilet paper. It was like 1.30 in the afternoon, the perfect time between shift change. And the cop said, oh, yeah, I didn't give you toilet. And he comes by and he sees us in the cell. He says, oh, push his button. We got a bleeder. We got a bleeder. This guy's full of blood. And I, I see that the knife is bent. I throw it down into the toilet. And they spray as they spray as they spray as they throw bombs in the cell. And I still, I've turned the water on, I flushed my face, and I grabbed the rope, and I wrapped it around his neck, and I was pulling on him as hard as I could. And I couldn't breathe anymore. There was a cop that was there, he was a Christian, he said, Reyes, don't do it, man, let him go. And I let him go. I think he prayed to God. And the guy lived. I seen him a month later and he he told me that he, he forgave me and that I he had it coming. And he said that I was about the business and that he respected me. He understood. But 
then I was alone in my cell now. I think that's where God wanted me, to be alone. And I suffered greatly. I would get paranoid. I would hear things. I would have anxiety. I would curse God on the ground. Curse Him. Hatefully. Challenging God. Because I couldn't breathe. Until finally I, I started reading the word. I'm by myself and. I sent one young kid out. To the streets to control some of the area that I'm from. And they killed him at his mother's house. On Thanksgiving. They shot him in his chest. Then they killed Eric. Then they killed Jimmy. Then they killed Mikey. They killed Eric at his home in front of his wife and kids. These were my friends. I grew up with them. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't do it. I suffered. I cursed God. But he never walked away from me. He never gave up on me. Until one day I. I woke up and. I had a dream. That I was wrapped in salt. And that. Somebody came and gave me water and washed it away. I looked up and it was the Lord. And he gave me clothes to put on because I was naked. That's when I knew I had to walk away from the gang lifestyle. I was transferred back to to Corcoran's shoe. Now my cousin's on the streets. He's working. He's a big shot. Working for the SSU. So he's no longer in the prison. So they moved me back to Corcoran. It was horrible there. I hated it. It was like a seven year period between when I started to feel this pull Like 2003 to 2010, it took a long time. It was a slow process. Cursing God, reading the Bible, wanting to understand. And then one day, man, they they killed this guy down the tier for me. They left his blood on the tier and they drug him away. And I knew he was going to die. And I didn't say nothing. He wasn't for my gang, but I just felt like telling them. He was doing a parole violation and they killed him. Then the next day, they wanted to kill one of my friends. He's a young guy and like, I wanted to tell him, but I couldn't tell him. And they attacked him, but they didn't kill him. He ended up almost killing the other guy. Left his head as big as a 
punking and like I said, you know what? That's it. I can't take this no more. I didn't have no issues with the gang. They didn't have no issues with me. I didn't owe them no money. Nothing. And then I read that I couldn't serve two masters. This was in 2010. After 20 years of, of, of strong activity, like just being... A solid dude. Being, yeah. <clears throat> I told the cop, man, we went to visit. I went and seen my... The mother of my children, her little sister had a baby and they brought the baby. And I cried and she's like, why are you crying? I said, I'm done. I can't do this shit no more. And I walked away. I told the cop, I'm done, man. He's like, sure. I said, yeah, I'm done. He knew what I was talking about. Just like that. Yeah. He's all right. We're going to call the IGI came from their house. It was his day off. He came. He's like, I want to talk to this guy. Yeah. So I walked away from it. I walked away from the gang lifestyle. And, you know, I, I said, man, you know, like when I walk away, I told him, I said, I'm not going to get involved in nothing. I'm going to serve the Lord. I did, you know. And I didn't get involved in nothing. I didn't sell nothing. I didn't do none of that stuff. And I I got away from that, you know. And But I seen a lot of men struggling. And I started a, a anger management group, you know, with, with, uh, with one of the psychs there. She's a young psychologist that just started working. And I come out. I had to come out because I had been in the shoe 10 plus years. So anytime you, you've been in solitary confinement that long, you, you need you some have help. To, yeah, you need to. They automatically they have to come and see you. So I would come out, and I challenged this young woman. Her name was Doctor Lane, and I told her. She said we could talk about anything, Rudy. I said okay, let's talk about baseball. <laughs> and it just so happened that she was a, a the only child, uh -huh. and her and her dad used to go and watch baseball games. They. <laughs> <laughs> on TV, and, and she knows so much about baseball. It just so happened. It just so happened, and it's just like the Lord just put people in front of me. And then she says, you know what, Rudy? I'm going to give you a book. I want you to read this book every week because usually they're supposed to come see you every month. She wanted to see me every week. So she gives me Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Victor Frankel. Yeah. And when I read it, I cried. I was never a crier in prison. I didn't like that. Yeah. I was never, but I cried in myself. He was looking at me and said, are you all right, brother? Because now I'm in, now I'm in a, another side of the prison. You know, a lot of us are ex-gang members. Some people are just there for whatever reason. But, yeah. and I said, man, I said, this book is powerful. It's like, you know, and I just felt that his experience, you know, his suffering was greater than mine. And and I, I just like, and he still had hope and he still had love and he still cared for people. And here I was part of a destructive lifestyle and now the Lord's working on me. Like, 
bigger and stronger now. And, and you know, I became stronger in, in the Lord and I became a leader in the sense that now I got guys to come out, to come to this group and we would talk about whatever people wanted to talk about to help people deal with. You know, a lot of us were barely getting out of the shoe. We've been in the shoe 10 plus years and we're trying to transition out. And I, so I ended up, you know, it was a three, four year process. You know, they didn't just open the door and let me out. Yeah. You know, they had to investigate and vet everything that I said and like everything Make sure. that was, you know, like, and the thing is, is that I, I, um, I had to confess And I knew that that's what I had to do in order to be right with God. You know, and um, I did that and then I ended up getting out of the shoe eventually. And I became a, a clerk in the law library because I was very litigious while I was in there. You know, I learned to file lawsuits and, and I was actually pretty good at it. And, you know. And I loved it. I loved to read. I loved to study. And I, I read the Bible. And the, the more I read the Bible, the less litigious I, I became. But I started taking up cases that were really affecting people for real. It's not, you know, exaggerating none of the. Yeah. So I started to help with people. And people started coming to me. And they would be like, hey, well, you know how much? I was like, I don't, I don't accept payment for assistance because I don't need it. You know? And I only help people that I feel, you know, have a good case and they deserve the help. And, you know, people started coming to me and they flocked to me and uh, I would, eventually they sent me up to High Desert from Kern Valley. I went to High Desert, one of the worst prisons in, in California. And um, there was a lot of racism, a lot of beating the cops. The same thing as Corcoran all over again. I seen it. I'm like, I know what's going on. I know. Familiar ground. So there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of they they're dumping guys off their wheelchair, you know, searching their wheelchair, like doing just really really foul stuff. And what helped me understand a lot of that is reading the Bible. It reminded me of the Roman soldiers taking advantage of people, right? And I just like everything was now biblical. Now I could tie one to the other. And I would pray and I ended up becoming the president of that yard, you know. So like I'm the head of the yard and I'm pushing forward. And I I ended up getting everyone on the, on the table, the prison law office, the warden became my friend, the captain became my friend, um, the office of inspector general of California, they sent the team up there and they became my friends and I sat them all down. I said, everyone's not as bad as what you guys think they are. And I chaired the meeting, and they told me it was a big deal. Everybody that worked, they said, we've never done this. We've never sat down with the potential defendant. The cops never sat down with the prison law. Everyone thought the other side was a devil. But I needed results for the people that were suffering right now. We couldn't wait 10 or 15 years for the results. And we turned that, that around, and then... I remember in 2016, uh, while I was at High Desert and I was, I was slated to get out. Um, I met some people, brothers that I had known that were inside. You know, they were with the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, uh, ARC. It's an organization that helps, you know, 
men and women that are transitioning out to society to, you know, get a career, all that job, housing, everything. So I met the head of the, the organization at the time, Scott Budnick, and, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to take you, I'm, I got you, I'm going to be here. I'm like, yeah, he was talking really fast. I said, man, this guy's too smooth. He's, he ain't going to do nothing, right? Like, it's okay. I, 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 yeah, I got yeah. God on my side, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, right? <laughs> Whether you come through or not. <laughs> so the warden, the cop calls me to the podium. He says, hey, the warden wants to talk to you. I'm like, what? Like, on the phone. Like, he wants to talk to you right now. I'm on the cop's phone. Yeah. <laughs> right? And the cop walks away. And they say, hey, man, I don't know who you know or what you know, but there's people calling me and telling me that, you know, you're going to be going over here and you're having problems with this and that because they were going to send me back to Salinas. I didn't want to go there, of yeah. course, yeah, obviously. Of course, yeah. I didn't want to go any go to even where I grew up at. And they said, well, you're going to go and that's just it. And I said, okay, well, I mean, but I did it. By God's grace, I ended up in Los Angeles and... I go to uh, Amity Foundation, Amistad de Los Angeles, and uh, transitional housing there. And, uh, you know, I start I start working with the men there. I start helping a lot of the guys that are getting out. Now, you, you brought some, but you brought something that, that's very meaningful to, to, to the podcast. You brought your Bible. Oh, yeah. So... I thought about buying a expensive, fancy, fancy Bible, but I brought my prison Bible. <laughs> so this is the Bible that I had when I was in prison. It's the same one I studied. I just take notes and, you know, I read everything and I still, you know, read the word. And I thought about getting a brand new fancy one, like <laughs> leather bound and yeah, all that. Yeah. I think, you know, eventually one day God might give me one of those, but like, I'm not going to go out and seek it. I want to keep this one. Yeah. Because it works, you know, just as good as any other one of them. That's right. And, um, you know, I, I had mine all the way up until um, uh, when I was dating my, my wife. I wasn't married to her yet. And um, what, 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 what we did is we, uh, she gave me hers and I gave her mine. And um, it was one of those, you know, one of those cute things that you do, right? And uh, I told her, I said, man, this, this Bible, I've had it since, since inside. It means a lot to me. Like, um, just, just take care of it, you know. <clears throat> and, and, you know, this is meaningful to you. I know it is. Because this sat in, in a cell with you for many years. And <laughs> you probably read it back and forth. And you're not letting go, letting go of that thing. And that's how I felt about mine. And uh, uh, at one point, my wife took it to work, well, my girlfriend at that time, and left one of her windows down. And it had a cover on it. And somebody saw it and ran off with it. And they probably thought it was, you know, something else other than, the, than what they got. So whoever stole it, opened it, and... You know, all they got was the word of God. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what they needed the most. Exactly. Because I know that this is a symbol of my freedom. That's right. I read Jeremiah and, and I remember when when the rope came out of nowhere out of heaven, it seemed like to Jeremiah. But I believe it was the Ethiopian uh, eunuch that threw the rope down and helped him out of the out of the mire. And I just felt like God lifted me from the mire and freed me from 
from the enslavement of not only sin but of, of the gang lifestyle and of of the burdens that you know that's one thing to to kill but it's another thing to have to kill your friends and and you know it's not something that I don't think a person can stomach for that very long and I knew I couldn't do it I couldn't have made it out with without Christ I would have went crazy I know that he protected me not only my body but my mind and he had a purpose for me and I knew that I had great plans to do this that and the other but God had other plans How much time did you do altogether Rudy Probably like 30 plus years, you know, altogether. I never got off probation or parole until recently. And um, they let me off parole right away, you know, like, just like, <laughs> you know, I put in for it and it's like, yeah, yeah we're going to let you off. And now I'm Praise not God, like, man. yeah, and, and I'm not like, I've done things while I've been out here to help, you know, other brothers and sisters that were in my situation. And, you know, on a personal level and on a greater level, going to lobby the, the Senate and Assembly up in Sacramento here in California. And I would say, give me the Republicans. Let yeah. me have the Republicans. I got this, right? I'll, yeah. I will speak to them. And I'm going to speak something that they can ever, ever rebut. So I would go in. I would look around their office, see what they got going on, family, maybe a Bible, maybe a cross, maybe whatever it is that they had. And I would open up and say, you are living on a second chance. We all are. And that's why I want you to give these people a second chance. I said, the Lord forgave the thief on the cross right there. He had friends that were, that were harlots and that were drunkards and that were money lenders and all these filthy things that People considered to be outcast. And he left specific instructions to take care of the prisoner and to take care of the orphan and the widow and the homeless and all these people that are considered outcasts in society. And I read that and I understood it. I read the Bible years before. I didn't understand it. Only by the grace of God was I able to understand the word of God. You know, and that 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 is what it takes. Um, you know, um, for me, I, I've had um, and and it's, I think it's um, absolutely God's hand. When you get out, and God starts to put people in your life, but now you have your eyes are open to seeing the truth. Your eyes are open to seeing the meaning behind the people that God puts in your life. I believe that God puts people in your life from the gate, like from the beginning of your life. And we're just blind to see. That, like in your case, you share about your grandma being being a believer and speaking to you, you know, word, the word, wisdom from the Bible. Yet at that time, it's like, you know, like there's a veil in front of us and we can't see the truth. And then, you know, you, you see your life now as an adult. I'm pretty sure that you have moments where you look back and you go, God sent me that person to help me out at that time. God spared my life here. And then God put this person in my life. But we were just too blind. We were in darkness. We were, you know, uh, Raz uh, opened us up in prayer and he said, you know, thank you for uh, taking us from darkness to your marvelous light. And that is what 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 God does in, in our hearts in our, in, and saves us to the uttermost. I mean, I don't know how many times... I sit in my backyard and I and I have those moments with God 
where he reminds me of all the people that he sent, and then I just disregarded their help. I disregarded, you know, I, I've I've been really blessed with, um, you know, you mentioned Republicans. I'm in that circle, and you know, for me, it's been these people that have been like they outstretched their hand and helped me. And it wasn't behind a, a political party or anything like that. It, they just happened to be Republicans. And, and they just so happened to be, more than that, they were brothers in the Lord. And they stretched out their hand uh, very early on in my life out here. And, um, you know, I've been in the sign trade for 20-something years, 23 years, something like that. And it was a, you know, a, 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 a Christian dude who happened to be Republican who happened to have no agenda. I mean, they, right. we were just, he was just a trades guy. Right. And he stretches out his hand and, and sees, and I know that God, yeah, I, you know, later on I asked him, I said, you know what, why did you, uh, why'd you help me? Because, you know, how long have you been out? I've been out three years and like. And some change? Yeah, like four months. For me, it was like, I wanted to know why did he, why do you want to help me? Because there was absolutely no agenda. It wasn't like, you know, uh, I'll do this if you do that. Right. There was none of that. And I asked him that like years later. I'm talking about 15 years, you know, 16 years later. I asked him, I said, his name's Todd. I said, Todd, uh, why'd you help me that? Like, why did you teach me this trade? What, what was the purpose? What was the reason? And he said something to me that, that stuck to me. He said, uh, when I saw you in the church, I was doing it this, this particular day. I was uh, drawing a banner by hand. I've always known how to draw. And uh, I was uh, helping in this youth ministry in, in, at a Van Nuys church. Um, and I'm drawing this banner by hand because it was a small church and we couldn't afford banners back then. It would, you know, like a three foot by 10 foot banner would have cost you like 400 bucks, 500 bucks. And when you're a small church, that's not in the budget, you know. Right. So I'm drawing this banner, and he walks in as a guest drummer for a youth event that I'm putting together. And he says, uh, and I'm on the floor drawing on this butcher paper. Right. I'm doing it for the kids. I'm not getting paid. It's for the Lord, period. Right. And I'm happy doing it. And he says, when I saw you on the floor drawing that banner for the kids, I heard God's voice tell me, pick him up from the ground. And to him, that translated in, teach this guy this trait and help him. And to this day, man, uh, we're good friends, you know, and, and we laugh here. We, he's, he's here quite a bit, and he knows my story in the whole yards. He knew my background all that, but just chose to, to stretch out his hand, you know, God puts people along our side, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of background you have. When you come to Christ and you repent, and I believe that you repented, brother. Like, I, I, you're sitting here, you're sharing your story, and I could hear your heart. Like, it's a changed heart. It's a heart that was once a stone, a stony heart, and right. now it's a heart of flesh. My experience in, you know, uh, I, I believe the Lord saved the saved Paul for that reason. 
like to write about his experience. And, you know, it spoke to me what Paul wrote in his experience. I used to tell guys, look at this guy was in the shoe. He was in the dungeon. <laughs> he wrote this stuff and it was amazing under the conditions that he lived in and he was able to do it. Yeah. But he was a chief of sinners and he said yeah. that. And I too am the chief of sinners. I have no place to judge anybody or, or to say that I'm better than anybody. And I don't believe anyone could say that they're better than me. In Christ's name, we're, we're all his children, and, and he chose us. Yeah. You know, only a self-righteous person would believe they chose him. Because he plucked us from the mire. He pulled us. And I still don't know why. Mm. And it's amazing because you can have plans. Men can plan anything. Yeah. You know, and, and God has other plans. And Any you know, of the plans, yeah, and the thing in the is, man's heart. yeah, and and that's the thing that, you know, he even softened Paul's heart, and Paul was, you know, he was going out there and persecuting Christians, and so did I. Yeah. I actively kept men from reading the Bible, from any sign of that. I was, we were on that, and we would never allow that. And I felt convicted by, you know, reading what what was written in the Bible, and a lot of not just you know, Paul's story, but like a lot of the stories in the Bible, like, like I've committed those sins. I've done that. I've done this. And, and, and God still accepted them. Right. And, yeah. and God accepted me. And like, he didn't just send one person. He kept on sending people to you kept yeah. on. And I remember thinking back to all the conversations that I used to turn the Christians away from my door, get away from my cell, get away from my yeah. door. And they would say, I love you, Rudy. And we're going to come back. And Jesus yeah. loves you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing about the Lord is that he even, you know, writes about the prodigal son and all these things that, that happened in the Bible and how, you know, when that's basically us coming yeah. back into the fold and he goes out and he searches for that lost sheep and he leaves the 99 so that he can go and find that one because that's how I felt. Is that the Lord cared about me enough that he's going to go out and you know the shepherd's voice when yeah. you hear it. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so powerful is that you can hear his voice whispering from heaven. Yeah. Clear. And I've heard it. And I've felt it. And I've that's what changed my life. And that's the power of Christ. And there is no psychology. There's no pill. <laughs> there's no uh, hot tub that you can go in and feel better. Other than the Lord, and I just love fire and brimstone. When someone's preaching, I need to hear <laughs> fire, and I need to hear brimstone, and yeah. I just need to know, and I need Tell to... Tell me how it is. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, that the Bible is very raw. If you read it and you oh, understand yeah. it, and the Lord allows you, by the grace of God, you're, you draw each breath, you're able to see, to even read the Bible, and, you know, to fill the Holy Spirit, and to really, really, you know, receive His blessing, and, and you know, that's what's... My Bible just is my freedom, you know. That is, yeah. is 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 a living, you know, they say the Constitution is a living document. Well, this is a living, breathing document right here. This is what will set you free, you know, not right. the authorities that release you from, from prison or from incarceration or from, from any type of solitary confinement or anything like that because a lot of the Lord's prophets suffered the same things that I suffered. And, and when you look at all the characters throughout the Bible, I mean, from Genesis all the way through, 
through 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 revelation these dudes were not weak dudes these dudes <laughs> were like solid dudes in their past and there were ru rugged dudes there yeah. were there were rough rough riders you know right. they, they weren't like some little dude in the corner just like you know afraid of things these dudes like they were they were heavy hitters and that's who god comes to you know and not to say that god doesn't come to to the weak and the feeble because he does he, yeah. he comes to everybody but there's something that you know that happens to the heart of 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 people that have been through things done things seen things to him who has been forgiven much loveth much and so i mean you know we 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 go out there and we tell you know i, I joke about this at our church um but i'm being serious at the same time if you're going to sit next to me in an airplane, I'm going to find an open door to tell you about Jesus Christ. If you're going to sit at, you know, in, in, in anywhere at a restaurant, I'm constantly looking for an open door to, to, to bring Christ into the center of that conversation because they're so always meaningful. Their life is meaningful. They might not know it, but God's been after them. God's after us. God is after our lives. If you're listening to this podcast uh, and you've just, you know, you you you've been captivated by Rudy's story, and you might say, "Well, you know," I, and you might have thought, "I've done some things. God doesn't want anything to do with me." Here's Rudy. Here's his story. I think God wants something to do with you. I think you're not too far at the end of that road where God is tugging at your heart right now, even as you're driving, might be in your kitchen, might be in your living room. I don't know where you're at right now as you're listening to this podcast, but God has been after your life. And God wants your life to be meaningful because he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. He loves you so much that he is the God of second chances. He's the God that he wants relationship with you. And that's the beauty of the Lord is that he'll give you multiple chances, yeah. multiple opportunities to repent and turn to him. And like, there's no sin in the Bible that, that any listener out there is beyond the scope of them committing. I mean, the Lord knows every sin. He that's took right. every sin in, you know, and, and, you know, he died for us and, and not really, really understanding that. Until you you really face death and you see it and, and and you see the bloodshed and you see all the things that that have happened in your life in my life and and you really understand the the profundity of 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 his sacrifice for someone like me like I'm like wow he did that for me yeah so I did this time and I did this experience for you so that you wouldn't have to do it so that you wouldn't have to go through the things that I went through through the mental and spiritual anguish that I had, you know, and by God's grace, I, I didn't take any medication. Yeah. You know, I didn't lose my mind. Like I, I'm amazed by that now because yeah. a lot of people, they lost their they mind lost their mind, and their hearts were so hardened that, yeah. that they lost everything. And, yeah. and, you know, I stayed strong and, and, you know, I know my mother, she probably spent many sleepless nights praying for me and my grandmother and all my family and the people that knew who I was, you know, like, like these are prayer prayers answered. And when right. you see a prayer answered and you get a prayer answered, a lot <laughs> of times you don't recognize it. Yeah. 
because you're too caught up in, in, in what you're going through. But the Lord sends down blessings every day, every day, you know, and, 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 you know, what the little that I have now is, is like, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy with that. And I'm happy to have, you know, a church that I attend and, uh, uh brothers that, I, that I, that I fellowship with. And, and that's my strength, man. Like, I don't, you know, I don't go around and, 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 you know, harm anyone or anything like that. I don't want to harm anyone. I want to help people and I have helped people. And, you know, I, I just, you know, and, and th when this virus hit and all that, my career was taking off. I've been working in film and, and, you know, now I have time to reflect on Christ and, and to really focus on what I want to do, you know, to glorify his name in, in all things that I do, whether it's yeah, me man. eating, drinking, um, you know, praying with my brothers and, you know, us coming together as brothers to pray. I think that's the most important thing is to to be mindful of, of, of God because he's been mindful of us and he has protected us and kept us. Yeah. You know, there's people that have gone through a war and for some reason they made it through, yeah. you know, and that's the way the Lord works. And, and you know, um, in this virus that, that's going on now, I mean, you know, I'm not going to live in fear. You know, yeah. I'm not because he didn't bring me through all this so that yeah. I could be fearful over something that, you know, the Lord could heal. The Lord heal. He's the chief healer. He's a chief physician. You know, he's a head scientist because he created everything that we see and don't see. Yep. You know, it's just that man discovers things and then they think that it's, it's new. It's not new. It's been created. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're just barely discovering it. And, and that's the thing that I think that, you know, no technology or no science or no any other thing can account for for the experience that i've gone through and other brothers have gone through and sisters have gone through and and you know um i praise god that 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 i'm here today and i i hope that my hope is is that i glorify his name and that he you know will speak to the hearts and the in, in the mind and the soul of of the listeners and and, and they know that that it's it's a power beyond any medicine. It's a power beyond any technology or any other. You know, bleach is not gonna work harder <laughs> than. You know, Jesus's blood is is more precious than anything. You know. Before we wrap it up, Rudy, where do you see yourself ten years from now, or where would you like to see yourself ten years from now? Because now you know, you, <laughs> I think when you're dealing with somebody that's been down for a long time. It's like it's years, you know. We we think of it, but now you're out here. What's ten look ten years from now? Where do you want to see Rudy? At? I mean, honestly speaking, I, I would love to be in the presence of the Lord in ten years, you know, and and you know to be dining at His table, and that's my ultimate goal. And you know, um, I find joy in the s smallest things in life. You know, climbing a mountain. Diving in a river, you know, uh, meditating on God's word, and and there's still healing in my life that needs to take place because there was a lot of you know it was a lot of hardship and and you know things that 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 happened in my life that you know you just don't bounce back from that right away. I mean, you know, certainly having my brothers in my life now is very helpful. Having Raz and having Joel in my life is big. It's big. God sent me, you know, 
because alone none of the none of none yeah. of the apostles went out alone. Yeah. They always sent them out in pairs yeah. two, for a reason. Two by twos. Yes. And and you know and like I I just really would love like what I would love to do is 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 to write, you know, um and and film s- biblical stories. That's what ultimately while I'm here is 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 what I want to do. You know, and that's my strength. That's the strength that God gave me, you know, is the ability to, to write. And, you know, um I want to help people, and that's the thing that I want, you know, my work to be meaningful. You know, sometimes I've done projects in film where I just felt like unsatisfied and just like, but I gave my all, I worked hard, I worked harder than anyone on the set. I said, man, you know what, I'm going to work hard, you know, and people compliment me like, man, you know, and, and, but that's not what I'm looking for because I don't work for them. I work for God because I know that's that right. he, he, if I need a job, I just pray and, and jobs come, you know, and, mm. and, and, you know, I've been relying, he's fed me all my life, it, you know, he's taken care of me all my life, and, and, you know, that's the thing that, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, I would love to do, I, st- I started a small film company, you know, I barely started buying equipment, I have a business partner, and, you know, we went through a program called Manifest Works here here in, in, in Los Angeles. It's it's a a program for formerly incarcerated, former foster youth and former homeless. And they teach you film production, mainly commercial film production from A to Z. You know, you go through like a fifteen week, twelve to fifteen week course as a nonprofit program. And that's how I got into film. And um a lot of people don't make it because you know it's it's based on you know your networking ability and, and yeah, who you know. Yeah, and who you know, and 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 I always tell people, and they say like, "Well, how do you do it?" You know, I said, "I know Jesus." I know man. Jesus. That's that. <laughs> that's the number one. That's the number one network source that I need. Like, I I work seven days a week if I if I can, you know, yeah. and like I've gone twenty something days straight, you know, working on set. And if anyone that worked on set. You know, Hollywood is not yeah. what they think it is. It's not, you know, it's hardworking blue-collar workers behind the camera yeah. that make this go, right? Yeah. It's not like actors and beautiful people. It's, you know, it's... It's a collaboration. Yeah, it's a collaboration of... Carpenters, grips, everybody electrics. in between, yeah, drivers and everything else in between. Yeah, sign makers. Yeah, <laughs> sign makers. And then, you know, you have directors and producers and all that other stuff. But the thing yeah. is, is that, like, you know, in my my thing is I love documentaries. I love real-life, true-life stories. I love, like, that's what I watched in pre- prison when I, yeah. I would watch PBS, you know, every night. You know, Frontline yeah. was one of my favorite shows, and I worked with the director that <laughs> what, that did Frontline, right? Yeah. And I walked up to him because after two weeks, he got to know my name. And he's like, so what do you want to do? And I told him. And he's like, I go, you know what, man? You know why? What I think, I think it's very, because he won a, a, an Oscar, you know? He's yeah. an Oscar-winning uh, director of photography. And I yeah. told him, you know what? I'm really impressed with your work, man. And I said, I really love Frontline. And he looked at me. He says, I've never had anyone tell me about my Frontline work. I said, Frontline was one of my favorite PBS shows. Like, that show was powerful. 
I said, I want to create that kind of film. I want to have some kind of purpose when I create my film, you know, to, to glorify God and to, to spotlight a problem and to give solution to, to problems because there's no greater social worker or, or, or psychologist than the Lord, you know, and that's, that's right. where you find healing in our social problems because you could figure out all kinds of technology. You could figure out all kinds of medicine and science. and 12 step, 24 yeah. step. No. <laughs> when you create something, then and, and you 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 it's meaningful and it has some social you know some social wor uh, uh, worth and 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 it's and it's you know something that in the end of the day you feel like you know you've you've done something you've written something whether it's a play or it's a tv show or or film or a book or anything like that and 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 you and you're lifting up his name and you're spreading his word then then it's a great thing so that's right yeah well i i believe i believe that god's going to take you some places man that you know the bible tells us ears have not heard eyes have not seen ears have not heard nor has it entered into the heart of men the things that god has prepared beforehand for them that love him and there's overwhelming amount of um evidence that you're a changed dude and that you love the Lord and I believe that God's going to do something something really really cool in your life Rudy man and I can't wait to see what 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 10 years is going to do um God's blessing is is just amazing uh Joel you, you got any any parting words any anything you want to say not really man it's been a pleasure <clears throat> hearing your story Rudy uh you've been on quite a journey and the part I think I love, you, you did a good job doing a bookend interview, so to speak, because at the beginning you talked about how important it is to get together with other guys and, and to be able to pray and have a, a, a Bible study or just talk about you know, your daily issues. And then you brought it up again at the end. And I think that's important for guys because it can be hard for, for guys to stop long enough to get together, you know, and talk about what's going on in your life and, and pray for each other and encourage each other. But that's kind of one of the important things I take away from what you were just talking about. So I, I really appreciate it, man. I know we're trying to cover, you know, 30 years of somebody's life and in one day, it's too hard if we didn't cover something. Um, but I know your story is going to be a big inspiration to, to a lot of people. And like Casey, man, I'm, you know, this whole movie stuff that you're working on, that's pretty cool. We should talk about that another day, but that's pretty exciting. So I'm glad you've got something to see. Amen, man. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, the Shot Collar Podcast, um, we're going to uh, come to a close here. But, you know, um, I want to say thank you, Rudy, for your time, brother. Um, I know your time is valuable. And I know that. Uh, and thank you for you know, this is the first actual interview that you're giving that's actually outside of a classroom setting where we're going to have tons of people listening to this across America, across the world. Um, and um, I just want to say thank you, brother, and keep on, you know, fighting this good fight of faith, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about your life. I'm excited about what God's going to do with your life. And, um, you know, uh, sky's the limit with, with the Lord, man. Um, you know, I've been out here for a long time, um, and I didn't share my story until way, you know, passing 20-something years because it's not a story that you want to brag about. It's right. not a story that you want to 
you know, you, you just don't share certain things, right? Um, I'm sure that, you know, we just touched on, on the things that we could touch throughout these interviews. But, you know, we, we, we want to be careful when we share these stories um, that the number one purpose is to um, share the love of God, to bring glory to His name. And, and, and yeah, we, 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 we speak about what we went through, the pain, the, the pain that we inflicted in others. Um, and, and we do that lightly because um, we don't want to, we don't celebrate those things. Um, those are things that we did, as the Bible says, uh, in ignorance. We, we didn't know any better. Um, we didn't know the Bible. Uh, we didn't know what sin was and what it, how it separated us from God. And uh, by God's grace, we stand by God's great by God's grace we, we we live and we move and we have our being and um man there's nothing like being out here and enjoying the little things right just uh you know we were talking about the birds chirping earlier yeah. in the morning man I, I i have these trees in the backyard and and it's a choir of birds <laughs> and what a reminder of freedom what a reminder of you know i've been out for a long time and i i treasure uh, my time out here, I know that none of us, every one of us uh, that have been in these interviews that have spent uh, time in there, I can, I can, I can pretty much bet that we can all agree that we didn't deserve to even be out here, and yet um, God allowed us, and we got to use that time wisely out here to help people. And I'm glad that you're helping people out there, man, uh, with your story, with your life. Um, I'm going to continue to pray for you. And uh, I gained a new friend in you, a new brother in the Lord. And, uh, you know, count me in as uh, as the third dude uh, coming into the Raz and, and Joel uh, <laughs> Foundation. <Yeah>. No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, thank you for Joel and, and, and Casey for having me here and letting me, allowing me this, this space to share where I believe that it's going to, you know, go somewhere for the good of, of, of God and, you know, like, you know, uh, just I had a I had a uh, pastor tell me that I, I was, you know, not fighting my enemies or other men, but I was in direct conflict and contention with God. And you know who won that battle? You know, that's right. I, I surrendered. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the necessity for us to surrender yeah. to the Lord or else it's not going to work. You know, you can't, you know, half half surrender or, you know, you know half give yourself to the Lord, you have to give yourself and surrender and, and, you know, and he will show you the way and he'll lead you on, 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 on the right path. But I, I appreciate this. And then, you know, um, I really, really hope that, you know, the people that are listening out there understand that, you know, there's no sin too great or, or there's no amount of time, you know, spent that, that Lord cannot heal and, and he, use. Yeah. He'll, he'll reconcile you, you know, yeah. to, to his family. And now you're to be a son and, and a King and a priest in, in, in his family, not an adopted person, not <laughs> a half son, but you're a full son. A joint and, heir. And, yeah. And, and, and that's amazing because yeah. now, you know, you know, there's, <laughs> like you said, the sky's the limit with, with God and, yeah. you know, there's nothing you can have done or, thought of doing or you know been involved in but yeah again thank you guys i appreciate you know, absolutely you. absolutely man thank you so much uh for you out there listening to us um we know that your time is valuable as well 
we are so grateful that you uh, stuck to uh, listening to um, uh, um, to uh, uh, to his story here, to Rudy's story. And you know, um, if you haven't subscribed yet, push that subscribe button, push the like buttons on there. Uh, until next time, put God first, put Jesus first, and thank you for being on the Shot Caller Podcast. Tell your friends. God bless you guys.